0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Welcome back those who traveled last weekend and enjoyed yourselves in other places. And it's that time of year, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to have the family and be able to do things like that. So welcome back with us. If you are first time with us or if you've been around for a while, you know, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would. And for those who have children that they like in Sunday school, they can be dismissed at this time all the way up through 6th grade, if you would like that. Keep them with you if you'd like as well. We love kids. We have lots of them, and we're glad to have them. We're going to be in God's Word today, and, and I hope that this is not the first time that you've been in the Word. It is our encouragement to you to continuously be, day by day, in the Word, reading faithfully, so that you'll know what the Lord would have for you to know from His Word. You'll be able to hold up the holy standard in front of yourself, so that you'll know how He expects you to live. You won't be deceived by things that are told you. Uh, you'll be wise in the ways of uh, how the Lord works and what He wants for you. So be in the Word each day if you have not. I uh, don't have a way to do that. We do have a trifold in the back and help you get through the Word in the year. Uh, version also has a number of reading programs, and I would encourage you to log on, set up an account, and begin that reading. We're going to be reading out of the New American Standard. You can find that around you, uh, or just read and follow along in the passage and the copy of God's Word that you memorize each day, and, and I'll give you some verse cues so we can stick together. We're going to look at uh, beginning of verse 23 and following. You can open to that section in your Bible, chapter 11. Eusebius, a well-known church father, historian pastor of the church at Pamphylia, he lived in the second century. He was once threatened by the Emperor Valens with the confiscation of all of his goods, with torture, with banishment, and even death. To those things, the courageous pastor and Christian replied, quote, He needs not fear confiscation, who has nothing to lose nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body is not his own, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow, End quote. As we continue in this section that highlights Paul's hesitant boasting, but through which highlights the hard road that Paul walked. As a true apostle, we're really prompted to evaluate all of this, the reality of of Christianity throughout the ages, certainly for Paul as a true apostle. He saw the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in his own life. We looked at that last time in Matthew 10. All true apostles will suffer certain fates and have the promises also from Matthew 10. But we also saw in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we will continue to look at this but it's a lot like an old woodsman who gives this advice about catching a porcupine. He says, Watch for the slapping of the tail as you dash in and drop a large washtub over him, and the washtub will give you something to sit on while you ponder your next move. I, I, that's a lot like what we're reading here. I, when we read through this section, we begin to see the suffering that Paul went through, and, and in Second Timothy, of course, um, indeed, whole desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. The question is, what's our next move? So we want to grow, obviously, and we want to grow to maturity as we read the Word of God, and, and as we think about our life, however it is now, based on whatever level of, of uh, obedience and commitment that we're living, how will, how will your life be judged at the Bema Seat? Because without a doubt, we'll all stand before the Bema Seat of Christ with what we know about how God uses difficulty and how he uses suffering. Hard times. Is your first response, why me, God, you know, is your first response the vinegar of this is not fair, or is it the oil of maturity, and knowing God uses those kinds of things, and Paul said, count it all joy when you uh, go through virus trials, and James said that too. So with what we know about faithfulness and the struggle that we're to be engaged in, those are all worthy thoughts, I think, for introspection, as we sit on the tub, figure out what our next move is going to be. I'd like to start with our passage this morning. Look at verse 23, if you would. And if you've been here, this, the first verse is going to be a review. The rest of them are new, and so um, if you're the first time, don't worry. Anytime you open God's Word and you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, comparing Scripture with Scripture, you always come away with exactly what the Lord wants you to have, and that's how we teach here. So look at verse 23. Paul asks this question. He says, um, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often danger of death. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. Verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea dangers among false brethren, verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Stop right there. And we get into this, as we've noted, and we begin to read this section, we realize, number one, there's no exact parallel between the experiences of Paul as given in the Acts of Apostles and what he writes about himself here. There's no exact parallel. Number two, If you're a note-taker, there is also no contradictions found here from what we see in Acts of the Apostles. And number three, we learn things here we couldn't learn anywhere else. Luke didn't, of course, as you notice, he didn't incorporate a detailed biography of Paul in the book of Acts. We don't see that detailed biography of Paul anywhere. And we can note this chapter is not meant to be comprehensive. Here where Paul's writing, he's not even explaining everything that he went through, and it wasn't intended for that. Uh, this account from Paul perhaps overlaps what we see in Acts. It also adds details that we didn't know, and so we will take some time with some of this because it is material that we haven't seen, and, and I think it's important too because this was Paul's life, and I think it's important as we, when we started 1 Corinthians and we laid the foundation of, of some of the context of Paul, this is just as rich, and as we consider some of the things I said at the beginning about really what Christianity has looked like through the years, this gives us a, a nice side shot of, of Paul's life and what he had to go through, which can help us uh, manage difficult times. So he, first he says this. He says, um, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. And then, of course, it's hard for him to even say that those who are in the church as false teachers are servants of Christ. And we looked at all that. And then he says this, in far more labors. And at first glance, I think this could be taken to imply that the false apostles have actually toiled for the gospel. And I think that's his intent, that he wants he's kind of drawing in, into contradistinction his life and those that he, are giving the church so much trouble. And, and then that Paul's ex- efforts have exceeded their labors by far. But we know from the earlier in our passage that they were deceitful workers, remember verse 13, and they were disguised themselves as servants of righteousness, that's verse 15. So if they work at all, I think the, the right understanding of this is to benefit themselves. They serve their own self-interest. Uh, there's no table waiting going on. There's no serving as a galley slave like we saw uh, as part of the job of an under shepherd. So in that case, when he says "in far more labors," he must really be indicating his own labors are excessive. And I think that's the best way to take the angle on it. So, for example, have they been observed to support others while uh, supporting themselves? No, but Paul has. And that word "labors" is the Greek noun "kopos." It it is when you read that, you realize that's not just a light labor, a, a light workout. This is a toil that takes everything you have. It's a toil that When you're done, you're worn out by it. And so, Paul Paul chose this. This is not something that was pushed on Paul. He chose this. uh, And he desired to work that hard. And he endured it. And there are a number of passages that can give us the sense of it. And I think it's important that we pause right here for a moment because it's so very relevant for the modern church. It's something I think that's been lost in, in some respects in some churches. But if you remember 1 Corinthians 3 8, and we taught that a number of years ago. If you've been with us, you know this. But He says, now he who plants, Paul says, and he who waters are one. So the one who sows the gospel and the one who waters comes along and helps what was sown to grow are one, but each will receive his own reward, market, according to his own, there's the same word, labor. So there's a connection between reward and the kind of labor that we do. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, it gives a list of what it looks like to be redeemed. And it's pretty clear that these things affect the church. In verse 11 it says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So three things that should describe ministry. What are they? Not lagging behind in diligence. Literally, the haste is not idle. It, and it has to do with our general work in the ministry, uh, being about the master's business. This is what Paul is referring to as he talks about himself and far more labors. The essence of the verse is what needs to be done needs to be done now. And that should be haste and intensity uh, and urgency and the ministry work and the ministry of reconciliation because the context is that, isn't it? Uh, So it's the idea of owning the ministry, it's the idea of taking responsibility for the ministry that you're doing, tying it to yourself. I'm not really sure believers understand that so much anymore and connect it to the ministry that they do in the church, particularly the ministry of reconciliation that that they're instructed to do because people bring a lot of bad workplace habits into their ministry in church. And it's the no call, no show responses often end up in church. People have something to do, but they don't show up, and they don't call and let you know they're not going to do it, or, or just do ministry whenever they feel like it and not doing it when they don't feel like it. That happens often, too. And so that gets brought into the church from the workplace, but that's not the way that the, the scriptures describe what work in the church should look like, and it's certainly not what Paul is referring to when he talks about the um, co-post types of labor that he did. So when you're intense about your labor and you work hard, you'll create this responsibility that is gonna call on a demand for your time. That's the idea. When you invest yourself in ministry, you find a place to serve and work hard, and then that is gonna call by its very essence, because you set it up that way, a demand for your time and for your effort that's gonna require a labor that's gonna wear you out. And so that is typically uh, what Paul would talk about. And, and so that will push you to be zealous, it'll push you to be diligent, it'll push you to not lagging behind in diligence. And so you're gonna prepare for it. And Paul was like that. And he. He worked hard and harder, he says, in a lot more difficult situations, especially compared to the false teachers, who typically, false teachers then, false teachers now, just getting rich at other people's expense. They created a life of ease, they eliminated all the difficulty, and it's interesting if you think about how all that plays out, Satan doesn't attack them because they're part of his enterprise, which we saw back in verse 15. And we mentioned this before, as we think about false teachers and how we wish God would kind of depose all of them and and there wouldn't be any more falseness going on in in the name of Christ. We also know that God doesn't bring all of his judgment right now on the disguised worker of the kingdom of darkness, does he? This is not that time. That's still to come, right? Right now he's patient. He's not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to the knowledge of salvation. And we looked at that last time. So the kingdom of darkness does well in our society. Uh, It rules our culture, doesn't it? And, and we see it expanding, and it, and it does well, and all the time, while the true church, led by faithful under-shepherds, seems to have to fight and scratch and sacrifice for existence. We understand that, don't we? I mean, that's what we've experienced. If you, or whatever level of ministry you've been involved in, that's kind of how that works. And that's because this isn't the time when God is assaulting the kingdom of darkness. This is the time when the kingdom of darkness is assaulting the kingdom of light, Right? So should we expect difficulty in true ministry? Yes. Should you expect difficulty in your individual ministry and resistance to it and, and uh, hardship coming along because you're trying to do it? Yes, you should, because that's precisely the age that we're in, see. And so we're going to be the ones that find our, our enterprises difficult. Satan finds his relatively easy, and those who serve him in false teaching find theirs relatively easy. And they are dealing, and he is dealing with the unconverted and the unregenerate, and they fall wonderfully into place and do precisely what he would like them to do. So as in Paul's time, as we said, where the false teachers were really flourishing and living off the church and while doing nothing, and it's the same today. Uh, false teachers thrive in a society in which we live. They, they thrive in our world run by Satan. They prosper. They become wealthy. Uh, they are the influential. They are the at ease. Uh, the world isn't challenged by what they say. Uh, they actually embrace the world, and we see that often in, in uh, false church doctrine, don't we? They embrace the... They embrace the world, and they embrace everything about the world and make everybody feel comfortable no matter what, uh, what they're doing. They affirm all of that. See, that's precisely the kind of thing we're talking about. Uh, they couch doctrinal error in tolerance and spiritual-sounding words because people hold those positions very sincerely. And so they become equal, if you will, to true doctrine. And in Paul's time, it's the people who comfort, uh, who, who comfort the darkness and who give uh, their life for the sake of the gospel who, who pay the price, see, and they confront it, and, they, and they're coming against it all the time. They're the ones who experience hostility, and that's the same today. So, and here's the thing. You know, it's not the time that God is assaulting the kingdom of darkness. It's the time the kingdom of darkness is assaulting the kingdom of light. But even in the difficult times we experience, for them and for us, forever you're going to be rewarded for the hard times that you took. Forever, you're going to be rewarded for the difficult times you had to go through and and for the labor and for striving and for setting yourself up to do ministry in such a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Forever, you get rewarded for that, see, and the hard work and the sacrifice, and that all follows you. While at the same time and forever, the ungodly and the false teachers will be rewarded by the presence of the fury of God. And so we hang on to that, don't we? When we give ourselves, when we invest ourselves in ministry in the way that we see modeled by the Apostle Paul, instructed for us in Romans chapter 12, when we give ourselves that way, we understand there's going to be hostility, we understand there's going to be difficult times, we understand sometimes we're barely scraping it by and making it happen in the church, but forever you'll be rewarded for that, forever. The Lord sees that, see. And so that's a great encouragement to us. And then Paul says in after he says, in far more labors, he says, in far more imprisonments. And, and we know that we can look at this phrase in the same way that the previous one. Far more just means, you know, wherever uh, Paul, whereas Paul was in jail on many occasions and in different situations, different places, the intruders in the church, the false teachers, probably have never been incarcerated. Unless it's for embezzlement or sexual impropriety. And that's what we see, right, in false teachers. They, they do get arrested, but not like the guy in Canada who got arrested for actually holding church services and tried to instruct his people, they get arrested for misusing money and for being sexually improper. So, but if we're looking for imprisonments that are a result of hard labor, you know, the book of Lax gives us one of Paul's imprisonments. It's in the 16th chapter. It's when he was put in prison in Philippi. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 22, he's beaten up pretty badly, he and Silas. And this is right after Paul has cast a demon out of a slave girl who was running around announcing who they were. And Paul was annoyed at that. He doesn't want uh, someone who's possessed by a demon, announcing as he walks into a place, this is Paul and Silas, apostles. Um, that doesn't sit well because on the other, at the other side of their mouth, she's foretelling the future and making a lot of money for her owners. And so Paul casts a demon out of her, and um, the owners are pretty ticked off about that because she helped them make a lot of money. She was predicting a lot of things. And so verse 22 says in Acts 16, it says, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, And proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Verse 23. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And verse 24. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So that doesn't sound like a very comfortable place, and it doesn't sound like. Uh, if you're looking at, as a reward, people receiving you for doing the right thing, this is not going to affirm that you're in the right place. But they are in the right place, are they not? And what's happening to them is precisely what Jesus said would happen to those who were true apostles. And, and this is the only place that we have in Acts where we actually see Paul specifically in an actual prison. Last week we saw in Acts 20 that it's prophesied when he gets ready to leave, and the, uh, the Ephesians are there with him and some of the other elders. He, they prophesy that he's going to see bondage, that he's going to see... Uh, prison in Paul's future and they say he's going to be putting chains and and when he gets to Jerusalem there's going to be some uh, jail cell for him and we do know that when he got to Jerusalem he did have an incarceration there but it wasn't the incarceration like in a prison he was held in the barracks and once he affirmed that he was a Roman he was given uh for the most part freedom I mean he couldn't leave and he didn't want to leave because they would kill him but uh you know there was a riot started in the temple and and uh he wasn't in a cell. And originally they took him to Caesarea, and he was kept in Caesarea for a while, but again, much the same way. Not in a cell, not with complete freedom, but certainly uh, restricted, but not in, in stock. So those imprisonments are referred to, but we don't have any details about them. And we also know from Acts 28 that he was imprisoned in Rome, don't we? And so, uh, but he wasn't actually in a dungeon or a cell. We, we think he was probably in barracks somewhere, and he had a guard that was guarding him all the time, but anyone could come and see him. In fact, that was given as part of the instructions, let the people come and minister to him and see who he wishes. And so there was a certain amount of freedom there, but it certainly was imprisonment, so we can, we can count it. He couldn't leave, but a modified one. Later, we know that um, there was another imprisonment in Rome, Paul's second imprisonment in Rome, which according to Clement of Rome might have started in the Praetorian barracks. Again, a rented apartment or something where he had some freedom and wasn't actually chained up anywhere. But we know from, from tradition it probably ended up in the Mamertine prison. And the prison was originally constructed as a water cistern in the late 7th century but, B.C., but the Romans used it for high-profile criminals who were under the sentence of death. And there's an ancient tradition that both Paul and Peter were held there at the Mamertine prison during the final days of their life, after which Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified, according to that tradition, and their physical lives were ended. So there's an ancient structure there now called St. Paul Outside the Walls Church, and it's standing in the supposed spot where Paul was executed, likely under the rule of Nero. And Clement, when he's writing in AD 96, says that Paul was in prison seven times. So we don't have all that, Paul says, we just know one from Acts, again, so it's not overlapping, it's not telling the same story. Uh, we just have Clement saying he was in prison seven times, and of course, uh, AD 96, they'd have a pretty good idea of that, wouldn't they, because that's when Clement was writing, uh, because it would've been passed down from mouth to mouth, and, and of course, at that time, John wrote the book of Revelation in AD 96, so one of the apostles was actually still alive, so uh, the traditions would've been uh, pretty accurate, I think. So. He was in prison very, very often, always for the cause of Christ, always for the preaching of the gospel. And then it says, so far more labors, far more imprisonments, and then beaten time without number. It just means that he couldn't count them all. In Acts 16, 22, which we just read a minute ago, uh, the Philippian imprisonment, he sa- it said he was beaten with rods, verse 22 and, and verse 23, and they inflicted on him many blows, is what it says. And this is a Roman-style punishment, uh, the rods. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. 24, uh, tells us about some of the beatings uh, it says five times we just read the jews gave him 39 lashes three times the romans uh, beat him with rods that's eight times and in relation to the jews uh, lashes were given if it wasn't a capital crime and so the way that worked was in, in the mishnah which is the oral tradition of the jews that's how they interpreted the law it's what jesus and jesus had a lot to say about the mission of course you've heard it said and then he corrects them and that's that's the Mishnah he's correcting but the Mishnah told him that if the victim died as a result of the scourging, the scourger bore no guilt. And 40 was the limit of blows to punish the wrongdoer. And so it created welts and, and sometimes cuts on the body. But the traditional way the Jews was, for the Jews was to stop at 39 lashes in case they muffed up the count. They didn't want to go over and then be breaking the law. But Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew 23, he said this, he said, Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So they didn't want to break the law in their carefulness, so they want to make sure they only gave 39 lashes instead of 40 in case they messed the count up. So they stopped there, but so they're meticulous about keeping the law, and they were just busy beating the prophets this way. And Jesus said that the Jews always beat the wrong people, and of course Paul certainly falls into that category. They're always beating the, in, the, the wrong people, the ones they should have listened to. Those are the ones they scourged. And, and here they're beating the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul himself. And all those permanent welts and scars all over his body, he got from those, what would it be, five times 39, 195 lashes over the course of his life, no doubt leaving scars all over his body. And he says, I can't even count them all. So that's all we know about and the ones that he actually said in this, uh, this narrative. And we mentioned last time in, chapter, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, remember it says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Did they cause trouble for him still? Uh, absolutely. It's like, I've already, I've already paid. I've paid in blood, I've paid in skin. They'd be proof of his devotion to Jesus to just take his tunic off, and that'd be enough. And we don't know how many more times, because he says he can't count them. Uh, he just gives us some illustrations, but he says, I can't count all the beatings I've had. So there were obviously many more that aren't recorded. So as we pointed out, Acts is very selective. It gives a summation. It gives some selected illustrations of Paul's life. It doesn't give the, the totality of Paul's life, and it's, it's not comprehensive on all the events that happened to Paul. So all those things, and now often danger of death, he said, um, and admits the apostle to the embarrassment of the false apostles. He has been, and here's how it's actually translated, in deaths frequently, signifying there were numerous occasions when he judged that he was as good as dead in the course of his ministry, there were many, many opportunities for him to think, that's it, I'm dead. And, of course, the false apostles never found themselves in that position, which is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians eight. he says, um, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. There's one, Right? We didn't even know that we were going to live. There was so much on us that we thought we would probably die. Indeed, verse nineteen, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. And, and so he makes it, he, he turns it to a positive immediately, doesn't he? We had the de- sentence of death in ourselves, but that just made me not trust myself. Isn't that great? That's the, that's the way to turn that around, isn't it? But in God who raises the dead. In other words, we didn't know if we were going to finish our ministry, but if God wasn't finished with us, it wouldn't matter if they killed us because God would... God could raise us, if he could, if he wanted to, right? And so we didn't bother worrying about it one way or another. Verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, so he did already numerous times, we don't know how many times, and then he will deliver us for sure. There's a, a certain future, complete deliverance. He on whom we have set our hope, he will yet deliver us. So, we're just right in the same place. Paul says we haven't changed because we were under the sentence of death. We didn't change because it was difficult and we thought we would die, and we just trusted God would raise us because he's not going to stop doing any of those things, and he's still powerful enough to do all of them. So this is a really great attitude that he brings to the whole thing, which I think would be very, rather daunting for us, uh, unused to those kinds of things. So when he says he's often in danger of death, how often? Well, every day. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty one says I die what? Daily. I've heard that spiritualized and people say, you know, you need to die yourself daily. And um, I understand the spiritual meaning of that and, and there are certainly other places in the scriptures that talk about taking up your cross and dying daily. And I, I get that, but that, I don't think that's what Paul was talking about here. Paul was saying, I die daily in this sense. I live through my death every day because I realize every day could be my last. That's the idea. I live with that understanding. At any point in time, the Lord could say, this is the end and I'll be going home, and I'll be absent from the body, and I'll be present with the Lord. And that's far better. We know that. Paul said that. And, and I think it's important, too, if, if you know you're going to die, you start to prioritize your life, don't you? I mean, if, if you have an idea that, and, and I think it's important that we all should be thinking through that, which is what I try to do in, in, when, I, when I preach funerals, is to make sure people have the right perspective of all of that. People need to be thinking about the day of their death because that's the end for all of us if the Lord doesn't return. And I think that's the whole point of Psalm 39:4. It says, "Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days, let me know how transient I am." Have you ever prayed that to the Lord? That's an important prayer to pray. That's an important if you haven't prayed that to the Lord, then you're not really going to know how to pray towards your life now. "Let me know the end. What is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you've made my days as a hand's breadth, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight." It's like this long and in your sight, eternal God, who have uh, ruled all of heaven and earth and created everything there is, it's nothing in the span of your own existence. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, Sila. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I want? My hope is in you. Help me to know the end of my days, the extent and how transient I am because I'm going to prioritize my life Prioritize my life better if I think about that. And that was Paul's reality every day because every day he had to consider that it might have been his last. So did he prioritize his life? He did. So is it worthwhile looking through and seeing what was most important to Paul? I would think so. Somebody living under the, the, uh, uh, the fear of death every day is going to prioritize his life in such a way that should be a good model for the rest of us, wouldn't you say? And Psalm 90 verse 10 admonishes us in the same direction as for the days of our life they contain 70 years or if due to strength 80 years yet their pride is but labor and sorrow for soon it is gone and we fly away and then this one you've seen me i've posted this numerous times one of my favorite passages. so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom so when you figure out how temporary your life is and you realize how transient it is, transient it is and then when you begin to live that way what are you presenting to the lord a heart of what? Wisdom. You begin to really prioritize your life in a way that you realize this is temporary and the next is eternal. The long tomorrow is the one that you want to make sure you're living for. You can't do anything for the long tomorrow after you pass this one. So knowing these things and pondering these things is equated with wisdom. If you know you're going to die and you start to anticipate the reality of that death, you live through that death mentally, you live through it emotionally, and Paul lived through that every single day. Every single day he knew could be his last. So how much wasted time and how much wasted effort and wasted opportunity did Paul forfeit? I would say probably none, right? If you knew that the last day of your life is gonna be the 30th of next month, what would you accomplish between now and then? Because however you would prioritize your life, that perhaps is the way we should be prioritizing our life as we consider that knowing how short our life is and the length of our days is to present the Lord a heart of wisdom. Everybody's plotting to kill him from back in Acts 9. You know, he'd been preaching around Damascus. They went to kill him. It says in verse 23, they plotted to do away with him. At verse 29, it says he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, and they were attempting to put him to death. In, verse thir- in chapter 13, uh, they were trying to kill him. And then in Acts Acts chapter 14 they tried to kill him. Acts 17 they tried to kill him. Acts 21 they tried to kill him. I mean he lived his whole life like that. No matter how long he was in some certain place it was only a matter of time. Maybe a matter of days and they wanted to kill him. And and 2 Corinthians 4.11 For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What's that mean? It just means when you know you're going to die you want Jesus to be preeminent in your life. And isn't that what we want anyway? And so, knowing that we're temporary, we want to make sure that whatever time we have here, Christ is manifest. And so, he had this sentence of death on him every day. Every single day, he knew it could be his last. Riots started when he preached. Acts chapter 16, verse 22, it tells us that at Philippi, Paul and Silas received many blows, and this was the Roman punishment. 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, verse uh, chapter two. 2 verse 2 Paul referred to it and he said they were spitefully treated and we don't see any other two occasions in Acts as a citizen though you know Paul was beaten with rods he should have been exempt from that kind of punishment when he was grabbed there and um, but as we still find out today there are plenty of rulers who don't care about the law when it has to do with the church or Christians right we found that out this last year during COVID did we not we find out plenty of rulers don't care about the church or Christians when it comes to the law if they have a chance to cause hardship, and Paul, of course, experienced that in his own time when he was seized there and punished. Then he says, once I was stoned, and that was at Lystra, and we see it simply stated. And um, in Acts chapter 14, verse 19, this was a Jewish form of capital punishment from the Old Testament. And and the way it was carried out from ancient Jewish sources is that the one who was to be stoned was grabbed and thrown down from a height, and the, the Mishnah said it had to be twice as high as his head. So however tall the person was, you had to find a height that was twice as tall as they were, and they grabbed him physically, and they would throw them off of that height. That was the start of stoning. And the idea was when they hit the ground, they'd be stunned and not trying to run away, and then they would take heavy stones from that high place and throw it down on the person. So imagine the horror of all of that. And, and of course, the law said that those who were the witnesses were supposed to be the ones who cast the first stone. And of course, that harkens back to the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus knew the first ones to cast the stones were supposed to be the witnesses. And what did he say to them? You who are without sin, what? So it gives us a little perspective on that, doesn't it? But this is how the law said it was supposed to be done. And this is from the Lord, so it's not like we have to ignore it, but the Jews, of course, always whipping the wrong people and stoning the wrong, pe- the wrong people, right? And so they would throw him down, and they would hit him with stones, and they were so mad at him for preaching the gospel, the Jews came to, to Antioch, and they came to, uh, from Iconium, and they caught up with him at Lystra right after Paul and Barnabas had healed a lame man. And then he, they came, and they convinced the crowd... If you remember, Paul, Paul and Barnabas were there and they were um, in Lystra and there was a lame man there and Paul and Barnabas healed them. And then what happened in Lystra? Remember, the crowd came out. What they want to do? They wanted to worship Paul, did they? They, they, they were going to uh, do a sacrifice. They were going to burn the sacrifice and Paul tore his clothes and said, you know, we're men just like you. So this is what's going on immediately after he heals the lame man and then these guys come from like Antioch and Iconium and they caught up with them and they, it says, one over the crowd. And so... Um, in other words, the crowd went from wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas to wanting to stone them in a pretty short turnaround. Typical, right? Doesn't take long to switch the crowd's mind, right? Particularly if they have no discernment. And so he, they went from being the hero to being um, the one that are going to be stoned. And so they cast him down from a high embankment and they stoned him from up above. And you can imagine the brutality of all of that on Paul. And, and it says in Acts 14, 19, they supposed that he was dead. So he's lying there, obviously, stunned from thro- being thrown down and hit with stones, and they supposed he was dead, and it was a supposition that is excusable, right? He probably was not dead, though, because although you can imagine what he m- might have looked like, the verb supposing usually in the New Testament means that it's to assume something that's not true. So they supposed he was dead, but he wasn't dead, and... and If he had been dead, he would have had to been raised from the dead, and we don't have any record of that, and that's not something that's excluded from Acts. When somebody's raised from the dead, it's noted because it's important for obvious reasons. Uh, But anyway, the passage says, amazingly, that he got up and then marked this, he went back into the city. Now, how many, by putting up your hand, think that if you got stoned at the edge of the city, you would turn around and get up after that and go back into the same city? What what would you probably do? You'd be looking at that city in the rearview mirror as fast as possible, right? Getting as far away as you could, but Paul didn't do that. He got up, he goes back into the city, he encourages the believers there, and then he left the next day with Barnabas to go to Derby. Now, he must have looked a mess. But he bore in his body the marks of Jesus, didn't he? And then it says this. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. So, you can go through the book of Acts, and if you count them up prior to the writing of this letter... The apostle had traveled by sea at least nine times. If you, if you take Luke's account and you realize he may have left some out, but we can actually count up nine times he was at sea before we get to the writing of this letter. And so he tells the church he was shipwrecked on three occasions. So that means <laughs> that's not very good odds, right? I mean, one in every three times you go out in the boat, you're going to be in the water. That I don't think I'd want to go out in the boat if I was Apostle Paul. So it's dangerous to sh- to sail during uh, uh, certain time periods. But the only incident mentioned uh, that. Uh, by Luke, occurred when Paul sailed to Rome. Remember? And that was a lot of years after the Corinthian ministry. That's Acts 27, verse 41. So Paul's not counting that one, where he was actually on a shipwreck and had to swim to shore. So danger by sea was not unusual, especially in the winter months. Uh, Acts 27, verse 9 makes that very clear. After a certain time, they didn't want to put out to sea because of the danger of storms, and which may excla- uh, explain why Luke omits details that would interest us greatly about how many times Paul was in the water but the night and day spent by Paul in the deep would have been the aftermath of one of those three shipwrecks and, and it can be inferred that his vessel foundered at some distance from, from shallow water and he must have clung to wreckage or driftwood to save himself from drowning prior to being rescued and it's likely that Paul was uncertain that he would be picked up but he hung on and the apostle mentions a night and a day because in the Hebrew and Old Testament a day being reckoned from the evening to the evening Paul, Paul's Jewishness wasn't forgotten when he threatened with a watery grave so he knows how long he was there and he knows how long he floated and his memory and it's in- interesting he says um i have spent time in the deep that verb is poye'o, and it's in the perfect tense so it, that just means it's still before his eyes he still remembers the horror of floating around in the open ocean clinging to some wreck and so that gives you a little idea of how he felt about it and of course the question is still the same for the po- uh, false apostles and, and the false teachers have they been beaten or stoned? No. Have they risked their life at sea to take the good news to people who don't know? Haughty Jews and Greeks who were so um, ignorant of the gospel and talked down about it and how foolish it was? No. And culture isn't at odds with those who are aligned with the evil one, beloved. So they're not going to come and bring difficulty to people who aren't causing them any hardship or aren't bringing any guilt to bear. See? It's like that Grace Point Church we talked about in Nashville. Just a few months ago, Josh Scott, the pastor, he put on his website and made the national news. He said the Bible isn't the Word of God. It isn't self-interpreting. It isn't a science book. It isn't an answer rule book. It isn't inerrant and infallible. And then on the other side of his website, he said the Bible is a product of community, a library of texts, multivocal, a human response to God, living and dynamic. So here's the question. How much persecution do you think Grace Point Church has received by putting that out? I would propose to you, none. Why? Well, I mean, all the atheists really liked it. In fact, they commented on it, hundreds of comments. LGBTQ, they loved that post. It made everybody comfortable, right? It wasn't confronting the culture with truth. It was making everybody think What they thought all along in their foolishness and in their high tower, which was that the Bible is foolishness. It's just a product of men. It's an answer back to God from men. It doesn't have any authority over me. Everybody feels totally comfortable with that. So how much persecution did they get? None. Did they get thrown in jail? No. Not like the pastor in Canada who's been preaching and then got arrested and thrown in jail, has been sitting in jail. See, So that's a huge difference, isn't it? Because the culture isn't at odds with those who are aligned with the evil one. They fall right in line. They're not having to scrape by. In fact, I would imagine that, that Josh Scott's church grew after that because you can go and you can feel good about yourself and walk on out and think, you know, God likes me. Now, of course, in contradistinction with Paul, if you put it all together, and, and of course we can assume that the date of Paul's conversion was probably about AD 35. By the time he wrote Second Corinthians, he'd spent some 22 years in the ministry. And I think this is interesting. If, if you, if you, If you put all this together, just you average out five Jewish whippings and three Roman beatings and three shipwrecks and one stoning, not, of course, to mention the addition of things we don't know anything about from Paul's testimony right here in our passage and in Second Corinthians 6, 4 through 5, which he lists off another little snapshot of the things he's gone through. If you put all that together, Then we could deduce that every other year, at least in 22 years of ministry, Paul had experienced suffering that most people never experience. Or if they do, one time, that would be enough to make their blood run cold and damage the body permanently. Every other year for 22 years, he experienced things that most people never experience. He had some experience like this on average every other year for 20 years and that's that just you know that's at this this point in his ministry at the writing of second corinthians that's not even counting what happened after that that's just up to this point but here's the thing that we don't see we don't see any evidence of being a physical wreck we don't see any evidence of suffering from anxiety attacks or post-traumatic stress disorder or any of the other things and that speaks volumes about Paul's spiritual health and his emotional health and his physical health, right? And he realized it was part of the mark. I mean, he knew it was going to be part of what he'd have to suffer, so it wasn't a surprise to him. And then he went through it, and he realized those marks were part of what it would mean to be an apostle. And so because he bore them, it was part of the job. If you enjoy what you do, you don't work a day in your life, right? I mean, it's kind of like that. So no matter what came along, he counted it all joy. And Whatever abuse was hurled at him, he coped. And he refused to give up, and he was determined to serve the master. That was the thing, wasn't it? He served with intention. He, he took the job, and he worked hard until he was tired. And he was invested, and so it had to, made demands on his time, and he willingly gave that, see? And he certainly earned the right to say in 2 Corinthians 5.4, he says, for indeed, while we were in this tent, we groaned, being burdened while we're here we groan because why we're burdened It's just a statement of fact isn't it indeed he says while we're here we groan being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed but to be clothed we don't want to stay where we are we'd like to have the clothing that comes from eternal life so what is mortal will be swallowed up by life now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a pledge in fact he prepared you, what? To groan and be burdened in this tent. He has preordained good works for you to do and to be invested in them. So this is part and parcel of the life a believer should look to. He gave us the Spirit as a pledge market, therefore being always of good courage. So is it hard? Yes. Do you have to have courage? Yes. Is it easy to face death every day? No. Would you rather have a life of ease? Of course. I mean, we we want to avoid physical pain if we can, right? We would like to be accepted and received by people and affirmed. We don't want to be constantly at odds with everybody, right? But for Paul, that wasn't the case. And he said, you know what? He gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge. I've got the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment. So I'm of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. You think? I mean, if he gives his life up that way and he's ready to be with the Lord, he's, he's ready for that to be over. And it would be over. The second you're with the Lord, there's no more of that suffering, right? And the Lord has reserved and understands what it takes to punish the ungodly. Don't we see that from 1 Thessalonians? He knows precisely how to punish the ungodly. And he reserves that. But right now, it's the time for believers to be at work. And Paul led by example, didn't he? So he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Whether we're with him or though we're still here, we just want to do what's pleasing to him. And isn't that the we, we can echo that, can't we? Whether we're with him or we're here, we want to be pleasing to him. We're out of time, so I'm just gonna say Paul says, you know, whatever I do. Whatever it is I do, I want to be pleasing to Jesus. Can you say that in truth? As you sit on that tub, whatever I do, I want to be pleasing to Jesus. And he no doubt each time he had to face dire, difficult, painful, dangerous circumstances, knew that he was just moving closer to being what? Absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Can you say that, beloved? Have you settled your anxiety about the future with that comfort? Because, well, that's going to take away a lot of the worry and the fear that sometimes the unwanted companions of the difficulty and the hardship that your future may hold. If you're settled in your heart that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, and that's to be preferred, then whatever comes your way Is a lot easier to manage, isn't it? And if you've settled in your heart that whatever I do, I want to be pleasing to Jesus, then that aligns your life the right way. You've realized your life is temporary, and you've estimated the time of your life, which is short, and so you prioritize your life in such a way that the things that you do as you line your life up with those kind of priorities are going to be pleasing to him. See, Christianity is very simple, isn't it? It's not me standing up here giving you a whole bunch of things you shouldn't do and a whole bunch of things you should do. It's this. It's settling in your heart before the difficult times come that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So no matter what comes along, you're okay with that because that's far better. And it's settling in your heart that whatever I do, I want to be pleasing to Jesus. That's my mission, whether at home or absent. I want to be pleasing to him. And then your life begins to come in line, doesn't it? As You're in the word each day and let it drilling in you richly with all wisdom, you begin to understand what it is he wants you to do. And then, because you know what that is, you begin to put it in place. Very simple, isn't it? And so fulfilling and boy it takes a lot of the pressure off doesn't it so that's my encouragement for you today bow and be dismissed in prayer lord we thank you today for an opportunity to to be together we're grateful and and, and over the last couple weeks just been on my heart how great it is to be together in fellowship to to worship you around music to worship you in giving and what, what you've provided for us in abundance and to worship you around your word and in prayer Father, we we love you. We desire very much to be pleasing to you. We don't want to be the kinds of folks who uh, are hearing what your word says but not doing it. So as we spend time in it and as we read these passages just um, word by word, we just desire very much to come away with what you'd have us come away with. And so, Father, I pray that you strike away all the comments from me that would cloud what you would have them to know and have them know you. Have them to know your son. Have them to see the example the Apostle Paul provided for us. What a a wonder it is and realizing that he could get to that point because he understood what Christianity was all about. He understood what was expected of him. And so he was willing and counted it all joy. And so, Father, we like to be that way. We want to walk in that respect and be pleasing to you in whatever we do as we evaluate the things that are in our life now and perhaps things that will come as a result of a new situation or uh, a place where we're gonna be that you might have us evaluate wisely those things that will be pleasing to you and eliminate those things that are not so that we look forward to our joining with you. We love our life, you've certainly given it to us. It's not that uh, we despise what we have here. We're grateful for the the pleasures that uh, being with family and and, and the joy of doing uh, things here on earth that you've created and, and given us richly all to enjoy. We're grateful for all of that. It's not that we're, we're chambering because we think everything's terrible, but we do know what's best for sure. We want to live with that in mind, evaluating the time that we have so that we can present to you a, a heart of wisdom. That's our prayer today as we exit today and go out and do our things this week. I pray that we'll be salt and light in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and amongst our family. I love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. Give us opportunity to follow through with that this week, Father. And those of us who have burden for our neighbors who don't know you, help us have opportunity this week to, to share, open their hearts, and open our mouths, and open your word that they can hear it. And then, Father, help us to fulfill the Great Commission, being about the things you want us to do, giving out the gospel to everyone do that more and more as paul said for Thessalonians 4 saying that you're doing you're doing well do so more help us to do more and we thank you today for our time and pray this in the name of your son jesus and all god's people said